Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tong. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. I'm your host, Peter Tong. Thank you for joining us today. The intention of these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. And I'm delighted to welcome back to the show today Brian Forster. Brian first came on the show and told us about the elongated skulls that had been discovered in South America and how he was actually responsible for taking samples which were to go undergo DNA testing. And, and Brian is going to tell us a bit more today about uh, the results so far from that testing. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Oh, thank you, Peter. It's my pleasure. But before we get into the elongated skulls, I, I noted uh, when, when we first connected for this show that you said you were about to go off in search of a, a lost ancient city in the sand in Chile. Tell us about that. What happened? Well, actually, it was through uh, a friend of mine uh, who some of your listeners might know of, Lloyd Pye of the Star Child Project, uh, someone that he knows who's an elderly lady from the United States who's been studying the Atacama Desert of northern Chile via Google Earth for quite a long time. And because she wasn't able to travel, she wanted someone to be literally, you know, boots on the ground there. So she hired me and uh, a man with a uh, remote-controlled helicopter to go to the Atacama Desert and look for the remains of what she believed was a lost city. And we, in fact, did find remnants. So, so you say remote helicopter. How does that work? Oh, it's actually a small remote control helicopter. That it doesn't take a person. It takes a camera, and it has six helicopter blades. Um, so it's actually called a hexacopter. But with that, uh, he was able to fly quite high above the area and take uh, photographs uh, closer than what Google Earth can do in order to look for, uh, you know, remains of um, human habitation. And so you actually found some of those remains? Yeah, we did. We actually uh, stumbled across, um, we, you know, we had a, f- a four-wheel drive, and it was very rough going uh, through dry riverbeds and things, but we started to find uh, pottery, and uh, it was obviously pre-Columbian. And the farther we traveled towards the epicenter, which we had on a, um, a phone with, um, with GPS, uh, we actually found quite a massive area that once was agricultural, but now uh, it's so dry in the Atacama. It's actually the driest desert in the 
weren't rained there for more than a hundred years. But we did see very um, systematically set out uh, agricultural plots, uh, remains of adobe buildings, um, and some small megalithic remains. And, and the woman who hired you in the first place, what, what was what was she actually, What was her sense? What was she looking for? What was the point of this? Well, she she actually believes that the site is at least ten thousand years old, um, and so. Uh, I, I can't say exactly how old it is, but it would have to be at least 1,500 to 2,000 because that area of the Atacama actually was quite lush about 2,000 years ago. Um, and because we saw remains of what would have been a population in the thousands, they would have had to have had major water systems running through the area. And now there's absolutely nothing. Not even a cactus grows there now. Wow. So in terms of, of, of the work on this particular project, what happens next? Is there, is there a follow-up? Uh, through her, not really. But I've also uh, recently been connected with a man called Jim Allen, and he believes that actually Atlantis, the city of Atlantis, existed or something very similar to it in the Altiplano of Bolivia. And that's directly east of where we were looking. Um, in my work in Peru, what I'm always looking for are connections between the ocean and the highlands of Peru. Because I, I believe that several thousand years ago, there was a maritime civilization which was global in nature. And so in order to find connections between different sites on within a country or or even especially around the planet you have to look at ancient roadways and um, remains on the coast and see if you can connect those with ones in the highland areas it's an interesting life that you're leading right now brian you're all over the place yeah <laughs> I honestly can't believe that I'm, you know, that I'm being paid to do this. It's amazing. <laughs> well, you've earned it. There's no doubt about that. So, so t- uh, tell our listeners, because some of our listeners won't know anything about the uh, elongated skull, so perhaps you could just give us a brief overview of, of the historical development of that, and then I'd love to hear an update on what you've actually discovered through the DNA testing. Sure. Well, my first trip to Cusco, Peru, which was the... Uh, capital city of the Inca up until about 500 years ago, I noticed in a small museum that they had these very elongated, uh, almost cone-head-like skulls, which were listed as being Inca. And so no one in the museum could tell me anything about them. Uh, The more that I traveled around Peru, the more museums I found, and the more... uh, more and more of them had examples of these elongated skulls. So that started my interest in them. And then through uh, working with David Hatcher Childress, who's a, you know, quite a famous he asked me if I wanted to co-write a book. So what we did is we compiled all the information we could of where elongated human skulls existed around the planet and started to look at connections, uh, historical connections between them. And so that book was published uh, a little over a year and a half ago. Uh, and since then, I've just been looking more and more at every megalithic site uh, that I find in Peru and Bolivia. I always try to see if there's a museum attached to it and see if there are elongated skulls um, in those museums. And, and is there generally? Yeah, the, the, the trend that I'm finding is that any place where you find megalithic remains, and of course by megalithic I mean large stones, and in general they, they tend to be very tight-fitting construction. So the erroneous thing is that uh, most archaeologists believe that the Inca built these or that a, a civilization about the same time or 
teaches them, but the construction techniques are were beyond the techno, uh, technological capability of the Inca. So you're looking thousands of years before into a lost history of South America, and wherever I find megalithic remains, there are always elongated skulls. And so you actually got the job of, of, of taking the samples directly from the skulls for the DNA testing? Well, it wasn't personally me, but samples have been taken on two occasions from the uh, Paracas, Peru area, which is south of Lima, and they've been sent to two different laboratories. One is uh, attached to Lloyd Pye of the Star Child Project, and more recently uh, to Dr. Melba Ketchum, who's uh, working in Texas. And so the two of them are, are presently working on the samples, but um, what most people don't realize is because these samples are at least 2,000 years old, there's a of the DNA. And so we need the most highly sophisticated equipment in order to be able to do the analysis. So in, in terms of taking the DNA samples in the first place, what, what were they hoping to discover? What were they looking for in, in, in the DNA samples themselves? Well, Lloyd Pied uh, basically believes that uh, the, the the original elongated skulls are human hybrids of some kind. Um, he's very much um, of the of the school of alien uh, intervention or, or alien uh, breeding with hum, uh, humanity. Whereas Dr. Milba Ketchum, uh, she's a veterinarian, and so her uh, her work started with you know basically with doing. Um, the genomes and things of dogs and cats and horses uh, for breeding purposes. But recently she got involved with, um, I guess, what you would call Bigfoot or, or Sasquatch. And so she, she's gotten into a lot of from different people because of that. But because she's looking at strange DNA from um, odd life forms, uh, that's why she um, basically volunteered herself and her, her whole team in order to look at uh, the elongated skull samples. So just on that note then, so in terms of the Sasquatch concept, um, has she actually got DNA from sam- samples of DNA from those beings? Yeah, she has samples from more than 100 different specimens. Wow. And, and the thing is that she's, um, she's actually being attacked by academics and also by other Bigfoot researchers. Yeah. <laughs> because, of course, there are different schools of thought. A lot of people think that Bigfoot are apes. Or some some branch of um, of lost humanity, but what she's found is that, um, at least from her results, is that Bigfoot are very closely related to us on the female side. On the male side, there's anomalous DNA which doesn't fit in the database at all. So um, I'm very happy that she's doing the work, but she's uh, you know she's having a lot of difficulty just in daily life from her own research. Yeah, it's it's it becomes a challenge when you when you fly in the face of uh, academia, doesn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, in in so many different ways. And the thing is that, of course, you know, people want to know this stuff, but as soon as you actually present the evidence, then in a lot of cases, you you get a complete dismissal. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, people want to find the ruins of Atlantis, and and when you can show them uh, structure stone structures which could be twelve to fifteen thousand years old, in general, people just automatically dismiss it. They say it's impossible. So, so what what are the uh, initial um, findings on the on the DNA from the elongated skulls? Well, it's very preliminary at this point, but. Um, they, what, it's going through a series of different tests. 
the, if these are 100% human. And so that's the analysis being done right now. And so once those results come out, then those results will be compared with the global data, uh, genetic database. And then from there, we'll be able to find out whether they're 100% homo sapien or not. And then if they aren't, then the next step would be to find out um, if they're related at all to uh, to humanity or apes. And if not, then, of course, it's it'll be stage after stage from that point on. And for someone who's been completely um, embracing this energy and being in these sites, the megalithic structures, the elongated skulls, what's your own sense of, of who they are? Well, I'm, of course, I'm trying to do this from a scientific perspective, so I don't, I don't like to give too many opinions, but I think clearly from the work that David Childress and I did of seeing this as a global phenomenon averaging about 2,000 years ago, Neal deformation that was done in many cultures around the world, they were trying to duplicate or replicate the look of someone who did exist and probably naturally had elongated skulls. So I think we're looking at a lost period of humanity. And the fact that people tried to replicate it suggests that there was something very positive about those beings with elongated skulls. Well, the thing is that in every culture, whether it was in possibly Egypt, but definitely in South America, Central America, parts of Europe, and Africa, it was only the royalty that did cranial deformation. And so uh, being of the blue-blooded class, they were trying to replicate what their ancestors looked like. And so their ancestors clearly were very curious uh, beings of some kind. Wow, interesting. So it's going to be uh, fascinating how this, how this unfolds, isn't it? Oh, very much so. So if, if indeed they're not pure human form, then the DNA may or may not be recognizable according to what we, we know from other sources. Well, exactly. The, you know, the main thing is to compare the DNA with, um, you know, with modern day humanity, with, with different um, racial uh, traits, etc. And if it doesn't fit with that blueprint, then, uh, then you go backwards evolutionarily into the, the apes and, and the, the earlier forms of humanity. And if you don't get perfect matches there, then it's getting more, it will get more and more curious because if, if you were ever to have um, a close genetic extraterrestrial mating with uh, humanity, you would wind up with certain sections of the genetic code not matching anything on Earth. I mean, that's, you know, that's just pure logic. But I don't like to speculate too far at this point and not until we get the actual uh, results peer-reviewed. Well, stay tuned for that one as it unfolds, Brian. Thanks for that. We're coming up to our first break. It's Peter Tong for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. We all want peace. We all desire a more meaningful life. 
We work hard to achieve these things, but at what avail? The key is authentic living with Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of the great spiritual experts of today and will provide wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your own I am. Your authenticity can give you miraculous gifts, but you have to know how to get there. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. Be the change. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. Just a reminder to go to my website, www.petertongue.com there's all sorts of information there my April newsletter for example and also all of the radio shows archived for your interest almost 200 shows now over the last 3-4 years and also to www.myheartcenteredjourney.com and to our Ambassadors of Light program where we have a class every couple of weeks there are meditations there for for you to enjoy so please check out www.petertongue.com and www.myheartcenteredjourney.com. I have with me today Brian Forster, who is an adv- a global adventurer now in terms of looking at ancient civilizations and the elongated skulls. And Brian, I know you have a, a lot of information about uh, the Incan civilization and the recognition that that civilization actually goes well back before the Incans uh, in Cusco and the Sacred Valley in that area. So uh, just let our listeners know a little bit about that. Well, exactly. The thing is that anyone who visits Cusco wants to go to Machu Picchu, etc., but you know, mainly Machu Picchu, is that there is such a difference in construction done by the Inca over a, uh, quite a narrow period of time, about 300 years. And on my first trip there, I was questioning my guide about that, and he had no answers, because you have everything from uh, precision construction right next to it. And so it's been over the course of seven years that I've been unraveling this mystery, and what seems very clear is that the Inca, in fact, uh, inherited the city of Cusco, that it was a city in ruins, and that the Inca, when they first arrived there about a thousand years ago, they found the remains of a megalithic city. Uh, In fact, the name Cusco means the city of stone. And the Inca were not all that great at at, uh, stone construction. They mainly worked with adobe mixed with with, uh, field stone and things like that. So what we find in in Cusco and at Machu Picchu are remnants of a much older, much more technologically sophisticated culture. So tell us about that culture. What have you discovered about them? 
Well, it's a real mystery. The unfortunate thing is that uh, not that many people have been looking seriously at anything uh, pre-Inca in terms of there being the possibility of a, a lost uh, technological culture. So I'm more or less on my own with it. But thanks to uh, engineers such as Christopher Dunn um, and uh, and others, as well as stonemasons, uh, geologists, etc., who I've had on my tours, they've been able to give me professional insights that archaeologists, uh, you know, can't give answers to, and they're all basically stating that uh, this stonework is far older than a thousand years and is as sophisticated as anything we can do today. And so the, these megalithic structures, do you have some sort of sense of the age of them? Well, uh, through the work with Robert Schock, who some might know as the man who's been able to redate the, the Sphinx of Egypt at being at least 7,000 or 8,000 years old, uh, I think we're looking back uh, either at the end of the last Ice Age or before the end of the last Ice Age. So we're looking 12,000, maybe even 15,000 years ago. And uh, both Robert Schock and Christopher Dunn have both been on this show, so I, I, I know their work. And Christopher Dunn, obviously, as an engineer, knows a great deal about the hard stone and, and how the technology was, was done in Egypt to somehow create these incredible structures of great precision with this very hard rock. Um, so, so are we talking about similar technology in South America? Uh, well, the fun thing is that having been with Chris Dunn for more than two weeks looking at this, and he, Chris has been to Peru and Bolivia more than three times, I think, um, he's kind of perplexed because what he's used to in Egypt is finding actual evidence of stoneworking uh, technology like saw cuts, uh, precision drill holes, uh, things like that relative to the, the technologies we have today. But in Peru, there isn't so much in terms of being able to find the actual tool marks. And so we're looking more into theoretical ideas and theoretical engineering. Basically, the ability to manipulate matter, um, and my analogy to that is being able to take hard stone like granite, convert it temporarily into the texture of marshmallows, and then rehardening it again. As, you know, as strange as it sounds, but... That's a, the latest engineer I brought, uh, Mike uh, Mahar. He seriously looked at it from that perspective. He said they must have had vibrational technology that was able to manipulate the molecular construction of stone, and we can't do that. Wow. And, and in Egypt, I know one of the uh, considered to be the most important elements of, of the work there is to do with sound frequency. Is there any uh, indication that that's true in South America as well? It's exactly the same thing, and I think uh, also what we're looking at is when people visit Egypt and go into the Great Pyramid or when they go to Machu Picchu or other of these ancient megalithic sites, there still is a vibratory quality to these places. They, they were designed um, in terms of harmonics by these ancient builders, and that's why they're great places uh, still for meditation because there is residual energy emanating from the structure or emanating from the ground and reacting with the structure. And the megalithic structures, let's say in the Sacred Valley that you have, you have uh, experienced yourself and, and been amongst, are they interconnected from one structure to another uh, through the valley or through, through, through Machu Picchu? Or is there a, a, a sort of ley line connection between the structures? 
Well, fun, actually, that's a great question. The thing is, this November, or actually late October, I'll be traveling with Hugh Newman of Megalithomania and England, uh, uh, Glenn and Cameron, and they're going to look specifically for that relationship. No one's looked at that in Peru, as far as I know. So this will be uh, a really interesting trip. And the important thing about every one of the tours that we do is each one is a scientific and uh, uh, ex, you know exploration. We don't simply recycle the same um, tour over and over. We always bring new experts in who have never been to these sites so that we can look at them from a more holistic point of view. So that'll be very interesting to see what... And, and Glenn has also been on, on the show, as has Hugh Newman. So it's interesting, this thread flowing through. And, and I know Glenn is an excellent uh, dowser who has an understanding of the, the, the ley lines, certainly in the UK. So it'll be interesting what he comes up with. Oh, yeah, definitely. So in terms of, of, of these structures, and, you, and I know that you are about very soon to go on a trip to Egypt because you're actually going to be looking at comparisons between the structures and the technology in Egypt and in uh, South America. So tell our listeners a little bit about that journey you're going on. Well, it's quite incredible because Stephen Mailer, who's a, an expert on the oral traditions of pre-dynastic Egypt, and also Christopher Dunn, who has written two books about Egypt. Uh, one is called The Giza Power Plant, and the other is Ancient Technologies of, uh, of, of Egypt. The great thing is that uh, the way that Chris looks at things is from an engineer's point of, of view. So he's looking at uh, how... For example, the Great Pyramid was built, and why was it built? And his theory is that it was a power plant, an electrical power plant. Whereas with Stephen, he's looking at who made it and when. So when we have the two of them together, we're looking at the full picture of who built it, why they built it, when they built it, and how it works. And so your role will be what when you're, when you're in Egypt? What, what, what is your, your piece in that puzzle? Um, actually, well, I think mainly my piece is that um, I and others are looking at a very distant um, global civilization. Again, probably at least 12,000 years old. Some might call it Atlantis. That's a label rather than being a specific location. But that there was a global, highly technologically advanced civilization that collapsed as the result of the end of the Ice Age being an incredibly catastrophic event and that most of who they were has been wiped off the surface of the earth, except for some of these megalithic remains, as well as an innate uh, sense that a lot of us have, that our history goes back a lot more than 6,000 years as a sophisticated people. So one of the interesting things for you uh, when you're in Egypt will be this whole notion uh, that Akhenaten and Nefertiti uh, in some way uh, mimicked the elongated skulls um, that, you, that you have actually discovered in South America. So they also were in some way connected with that awareness. Uh, well, definitely. From, you know, from the writings of, uh, of Stephen Mailer, what, what was unique about Akhenaten was that he wasn't the first of the Egyptians to go to the concept of, of, a, of one, you know, one central deity. He was actually going back to a very ancient pre-dynastic belief, and that's the, the concept of Aten, and that's why he was called Akhenaten. Um, so that's intriguing, but a lot of people believe that the ancient Egyptians had elongated skulls, but so far, 
as far as I know, no actual elongated skull has been found. Um, but it's it's everywhere in the Amarna period art. You see it in the sculpture. You see it in the relief carvings of these people with enormously elongated heads. And so the question is, where did that concept come from? And that's uh, one of the main focuses of my trip to Egypt. And, and the fact that, that that seems to have been a time uh, when Arkan Arden was, was actually creating a pretty uh, significantly positive um, civilization at that time that they incorporated, at least symbolically, those elongated skulls. Yeah, well, the important thing about Akhenaten was that he wanted to return to the concept of, of Aten, which was back to the central god, the central deity, whereas uh, Egypt had fallen into very much uh, philosophical decay. And so you had the Amun priesthood in control of everything. And so Aten, or Akhenaten wanted to go back to a more pure sense of, re- of reality and philosophy, and that's why he and his family were murdered by the Amun priesthood, because basically it's the same thing that happened to Jesus. You know, this, this very brilliant person arrives, wants to unify, wants enlightenment for everybody, and then you have this priestly class who say, no, 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 you have to go through me or through us in order to, to be enlightened. And that's exactly what we're going through now. We're, you know, we're going into a period of complete freedom of thought and freedom of expression. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, e- even though governments want to suppress it, they can't. It's you know the the genie's already come out of the bottle. It feels that way, doesn't it? Thank goodness. Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> We're coming up to our second break, Brian. So we'll take that now. It's Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. This is the Voice America Seventh Wave Channel. If you are looking to shift from struggle to a life of alignment with your deepest truth, you'll want to tune in to Thresholds to Awakening with host Sway Emily Spilkin. Our program will help you discover that your deepest challenges are not mistakes, but opportunities to become who you really are. Thresholds to Awakening. Enter your darkness to find your light. Where Sway speaks with spiritual luminaries, cutting-edge thought leaders, and experts in the field of transformation. Listen live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Be Visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. 
If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. I have with me today Brian Forster, who's on a real life adventure uh, as the work unfolds with his expertise on pre-Incan civilizations and the discovery of the elongated uh, skulls of South America. So, Brian, let me give you the opportunity of, of giving our listeners your website and also tell us about some of the adventures you've got planned and tours coming up. Okay, thank you. My website is www.hiddenincatours.com and um, my wife and I do three or four major tours a year. We don't want to do more than that because, uh, as I said earlier, each one is an adventure. We never replicate or, or copy an earlier one. So in August, we have... Uh, Lloyd Pye of the Star Child Project, and he'll be here looking at the elongated, or he'll be coming to Peru to look at the elongated skulls. We'll also be going to Puma Punku and Tiwanaku. And then, uh, in October, uh, I'm, have the great opportunity to host Graham Hancock, who will be researching the sequel to the incredible book Fingerprints of the Gods. And then, after that, we have Megalithomania with, uh, Hugh Newman. And that will be, again, in Peru and Bolivia, looking at the megalithic sites, but also at the relationships through ley lines, energy, uh, and things like that. And you're off to Egypt next weekend. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, That one, I believe, is uh, sold out, and it's so close to the time of the tour itself. I don't think they're taking anyone else on, but um, that's going to be two weeks of exploring all of uh, the major sites, and then also... We'll be spending an extra week there with the Awian family who will be hosting us, and they are the oral tradition keepers of the ancient pre-Pharaonic uh, Comitian civilization, so that's going to be wonderful. Yeah, and I'm hoping to have them on the show, actually, at some point in the future. And do you know what um, Graham Hancock's focus is for the follow-up to Fingerprint of the Gods, what, is, what, what he's bringing forward next? Well, the tentative title for the book is The Magicians of the Gods, and so I think it will be uh, an updated version because so much has happened since Fingerprints of the Gods uh, was first published. It was a, a groundbreaking work because he was able to take many of the great anomalies or enigmas of the planet from ancient cultures and put them all together in one text. And so since there are so many different researchers uh, from different points of view, as in, again, engineers, um, architects, uh, geologists, etc., seriously looking at the idea that there was a great civilization more than 12,000 years ago. Uh, it is time that Fingerprints of the Gods had a volume too. Yeah, it'll be interesting uh, how that all works out. What a great opportunity for you to be part of that. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, one question I do have for you, um, there was a huge focus, as you obviously know, on the Mayan calendar on December 21st, 2012, and, and you were talking earlier about a significant pre-Incan civilization that really w was was the technological uh, awareness pre-Incan. So, so how does your information, how does all this fit together with the Mayan calendar? Well, the thing is, I'm very thankful and grateful in the fact that ever since I was a uh, quite a young child, I've been actively involved with indigenous people. Uh, mainly Native American people. And so I have a lot of contacts with uh, people who are the Maya, uh, uh, people who know the actual Mayan elders, uh, the, you know, the keepers of the, 
of the calendar, etc. And so what they were saying six months before the calendar supposedly end is that they were deeply offended by all of these Western writers who were uh, writing these books, these, you know, these fearful books about the end of the world. And what they said is that the whole concept has been taken out of context. They never spoke of the end of the world. They speak of the world being an age. So it was the end of an age because they, they, like most indigenous people, talk about cycles of time. And so December 21st, 2012 was the end of a cycle. And rather being the, you know, this destructive thing, it's actually the end of a negative period. And we're now in the, the birthing pains of a, a wonderful period of time. The other thing is that the Maya did not invent the calendar. It probably came from the older Olmec civilization. Now, the Olmecs also had elongated skulls, but they in turn supposedly inherited from an even older civilization. So there's much more to that calendar than simply being, uh, you know, the so-called Mayan calendar. And I guess each of these civilizations, each of these cultures puts their own spin on, on whatever is there in the first place that they discover. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, we always hope that information is handed down in its purest form. But since it's going from one person to another person through decades, centuries, and then millennia, there probably is interpretation. But the most unfortunate thing is the fact that some people have taken, uh, in modern times, little bits of that information and fabricated their own story. And that's what's offended the Mayan elders is the fact that um, people have been, you know, people wrote very fearful books about the end of the world and it never was the end of the world so so a question for you in terms of obviously the research you've done and the very close connection you have with these ancient civilizations and your awareness of that and as you just said we've come to the end of a cycle and we're stepping into a new cycle which potentially is a wonderful one i'd love to hear your own personal views about what has just happened and where where we are heading in in terms of that bigger picture well, I, you know, personally, I, I just, I feel very vibrant, and I think we're moving into um, a golden age, and I think that is why things like governments are falling apart, the banking system is falling apart, uh, lies about the history of humanity are falling apart, because we are opening to the awareness of the fact of, of how powerful we are and what powerful ancestry you know we collectively come from. Uh, the other thing that's falling apart too, which I think is good, is that um, a lot of indigenous people that I know are not so. Um, they don't have the, you know, tight grips on their own culture. We're speaking more and more about a global humanity, a global history. And so my going to Egypt, I don't feel like I'm, I'm walking into the, um, you know, into a foreign world. I'm walking into, uh, historic, you know, the history of humanity. And so I'm, I'm being welcomed with open arms. So I think the, the more that this old system breaks down through its, you know, all these painful things and, and fear, etc., um, from governments, it, you know, we're opening to become a global civilization, um, one united real family, and I think our future will be wonderful. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. And this, this concept of, of the barriers coming down and attachment to a particular belief system just crumbling away is, is actually magnificent, isn't it? Oh, I think definitely because, um, you know, one of my greatest teachers who actually lives in Victoria, her name, name is Lynn Hemry. She's half native and half white. And she's always told me that you're allowed to learn from any aspect of anything. 
you know, take the good bits from here, the good bits from there, and develop your own sense of of, um, of who you are and and how you relate to the world. You don't have to be in some kind of philosophical or religious or spiritual box because we're all uh, in the process of trying to be enlightened. And so wherever you find that, if it's positive for you and positive for your growth and positive for the world, then it's good. So in terms of this this time, and, and, and I totally agree with you that, we, that we're in this birthing time, this moving forward into this golden age, what, what advice do you have for our listeners in terms of how they should be living their lives? Well, I think the best is, is what uh, Joseph Campbell said, and he said, follow your bliss. So a lot of people feel, you know, that they're tied to a job which is terrible or live in a place they don't like. Um, if you, you know, if you really have the guts to follow your heart uh, and move, then you can move into whatever area you want to. And that's, you know, that's why I found this very fortunate place in my life because I had the guts to break away from, um, you know, from the, the chains that I had uh, wrapped around myself. And because now I've opened my spirit, my mind, and my body to adventure, adventure finds me. And you actually began your journey up in the Pacific Northwest, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I, uh, you know, I grew up uh, on the west coast of Canada. My interest in uh, in the native people came from a very early age. A very, very much a love of their philosophy, their oral traditions, their art form. I was actually a professional totem pole carver for quite a few years. But I just, you know, I reached a point where that was a great learning experience, and then that drew me to Hawaii, where I lived. And after that, uh, now I'm, you know, spending most of my time in South America. But now I'm actually able to become more global with this trip to Egypt. And so that that awareness that you have of the different indigenous peoples from the Pacific Northwest, from South America, uh, also uh, Hawaii, and now to Egypt. Is there a common thread that you feel runs through the indigenous peoples? Well, I think, you know, I think the basic common thread, again, is the fact that um, we haven't allowed native people to speak their truth to us. And, of course, to a great extent, that's been because they've been beaten up and persecuted for centuries. I mean, um, for Haida people to have taught me, uh, you know, some of the skills of totem pole carving was an amazing gift, taking into account the amount of, of abuse and persecution they've been through. The same when I was in Hawaii. I was... Uh, co-leader of building a giant voyaging canoe um, with Hawaiian and, and non-Hawaiian people. And the fact that the elder uh, Hawaiian ladies taught me, you know, some great mysteries of their history, uh, you know, was an absolute godsend to me because, you know, as a foreigner entering their world, and again, through all their per- the persecution they've been through, for them to have their, art, their hearts still open is phenomenal. And that's uh, definitely what I feel I'll find when I go to Egypt. Again, because we are an evolving human family, we are interconnecting more and more on a deeper and deeper, um, in a deeper and deeper way, you know, as one united people. At the same time, because of your own uh, humility and, and concern for the peoples, they obviously took you into their trust. Yeah, they did. And, and the most common... Um, you know, the most common teaching from elders that I've learned is that, you know, they've said, we don't look at, you know, we're not looking at what you look like. We're looking at what's in your heart. <laughs> and that's where it all resides, isn't it? Always. So, Brian, we're coming up to our final break. It's Peter Tong for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. 
the Seventh Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to myheartcenteredjourney.com for more information. Many of us make choices in our lives based on how others react. But what should really matter is making our life choices based on what we intuitively feel. By tuning in to The Mystic and the Mystery with Inspired Intuition hosts Beth Porozhik and Christine McIver, you'll receive the tools and inspiration you need to do just that. Your fears do not have to drive you, and you are naturally intuitive, creative, and whole. By believing in yourself, you can live the life you've been longing for. Listen for The Mystic and the Mystery every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host Peter Tong. I'd just like to thank Voice America for the great job that they do in, in allowing me to host this program to bring you uh, the wonderful guests that we have on the show. My engineer, Matt, today, Brad, who sets us up with our advertising, and my producer, Brandy. Thank you to all of you for the great work that you are doing in providing this opportunity for our listeners to hear experts in their own field. And I have one such expert with me today, Brian Forster, who is about to go on a magnificent journey to Egypt to make comp- some comparisons between the megalithic structures of Egypt and of Peru and Bolivia. And Brian, what I'd love you to do in this last segment, because many of our listeners will not have been and may never have the opportunity to do so, is, is to give us a bit of a description of what it's actually like to be in uh, the sacred sites of South America. Perhaps you could use the Sacred Valley as, as, an, as, a, as an example of what it's like when you take people on the trip and describing what it looks like, what it feels like when you're there. Okay, sure. Well, the thing is, the, you know, the Sacred Valley, which is just outside of Cusco, um, is called, it's, it's been called the Sacred Valley because it is and has been for thousands of years an incredibly agriculturally productive area. And the first sight of it is amazing because you basically descend very rapidly 2,000 feet from the uh, the highlands of Peru into this long, very long, lush valley with uh, terracing that goes from the valley floor all the way to the tops of uh, mountains. And so whenever you're looking for 
the remnants of, an, of a lost ancient civilization, what you have to look for are either signs of water that's present or signs of, of water that was present. And there's a major river that runs through the Sacred Valley called, of course, the Sacred River. The most interesting thing about it is that Though the Inca are more, uh, most famous for having uh, inhabited the area, it's, um, it shows signs that people have lived there for many, many thousands of years, and that's why some of the sacred structures are so intriguing, because you see where the Inca did construction, but either alongside or underneath those constructions, you see much older and much more technologically sophisticated constructions. And what's intriguing about the Inca is the fact that they venerated these ancestral people by never damaging any of the oldest structures. They always built either on top or alongside of them, almost as, as though they were hugging the older uh older constructions and so that's why the area has this incredible vibrant energy and even after 500 years of uh, abuse from uh, from the Spanish uh, starting with the conquistadors the sacred valley has this incredible energy that draws people from all over the world either to visit or more and more uh, so to live because of its um, just it, the beautiful energy the beautiful food that's that's grown there the beautiful climate and at the northern edge of the sacred valley is where you wind down with the train and you find machu picchu so i'm interested to hear you say it seems if the incas sort of incorporated the original stones in their structures so so what were the original megalithic structures what did they look like the ones pre, the pre-incan ones what were they made of well, the very oldest ones actually are, it's the bedrock itself, which has been shaped somehow, um, seemingly by some lost ancient technology, because you literally have cubes of stone removed from the bedrock, some of them um, as large as refrigerators, and no engineer can figure out how that was done. And then it seems like the next builders who came, they were the ones who actually did the perfect construction whereby you can't fit a human hair in between the stone. And the other intriguing thing is that the stone is never local. It's always been brought in from somewhere else. So these ancient builders were specifically picking uh, specific types of stone and always high in quartz crystal content. And that's why these buildings still have this very vibrational feel to them because whoever the original builders were, they needed stone that was high in quartz for some kind of vibratory um, energetic function. So when you when you're walking through this valley, you can, you pick, you can pick up that energetic vibration as you go through these structures. Well, even before that, uh, the thing is that uh, as you wind down through the hills outside of Cusco, and you first see the Sacred Valley, which you know literally drops two thousand feet down. Um, immediately, when I get my first sight of it, my heart changes. <laughs> I mean, it is like your heart drops or lifts or something, but every single time uh, that, you know, I feel that. And then as I descend into the Sacred Valley, there's a very, you know, there's a, you move into a slightly altered state of conscious, uh, consciousness, and as soon as we drive back out, I always get the same feeling, and I always turn back and look at it as if I'm leaving home. <laughs> and, and there's a pull to come back as soon as you leave, isn't there? Oh, always, and, th and that's why my wife and I live in Cusco now, because... I just said, you know, I have to live there. You know, that's home. And it's interesting why uh, certain people become very closely connected and attracted to certain sacred sites around the globe, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. Some people are, are you know, very, very attracted to uh, living in Egypt. Some people are very attracted to living in Hawaii, not just for the climate, but because of the ancient energy of Hawaii and different places. And, and I'm always intrigued by the stories of people, especially those who don't originally come from those places, who, who have this longing for home, and they find home in another part of the world. And that's, I think that's a great thing. It really is, isn't it? And, and the fact that we now have the opportunity to travel and go to these uh, sacred sites and, and really... Uh, embrace the energies that are there and, 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 and actually it's part of our healing, isn't it? It is. And also, uh, more and more what I see is that people are, are being of use to the places. I mean, like that, that I think is my function in Peru. I, I don't do tours because I want to run a business. I want to share with everybody what it is that I'm learning from the old people. And that's why I write the books. And that's the sole reason I'm on Facebook is to share what I know because I'm making a, a you know, a good living at this. So I want to, to spend a good portion of my time freely uh, sharing this information to people who either can't afford to buy my books or can't afford to come on tours because it's our information. It's not my information. Well, you're doing a great job, Brian, and I, and I really appreciate your time today and uh, have a wonderful time in Egypt. It's going to be really interesting how that all plans out with such a great uh, team of experts that you've got to gather together. So good luck with that and good luck with the Graham Hancock tour too. Okay, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And mine. So, Brian, just give us your um, website again before you go. Sure. It's www.hiddenincatours.com. Thanks so much, and thanks for your time today. My pleasure. So, Brian's got some really interesting uh, events coming up, and it'll be I will be keeping my uh, finger on the pulse of, of how the Elongated Skulls story opens up, how this connection between South America and Egypt develops. And my guest next week is Maria Wheatley, who is an expert on the ley lines running through England and specifically connected to the Avebury Stone Circle. And so I'll be uh, uh, checking in with Maria next week on a lot of the work that we did on our recent trip to England, Scotland and France. And so it should be a really interesting show. I hope you've enjoyed today's show with Brian Forster. Have a wonderful week. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. We hope that you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tung for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.